This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank 
all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Meredith Chesney. Thank you so, so much, Meredith. Truly, truly appreciate your support of the show. For anyone who doesn't know, Meredith is a brand new patron on Patreon.com where you can go and support the Sleepy Podcast that helps you get a better night's rest. So, if you'd like to be a part of making the show and have your name read in the opening credits of the next show after you do, just go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate at least a dollar a month. It goes a long way. That's Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover of her Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, we are fully in summer now, at least up here in Vermont, and everyone could not be happier. Flowers are coming out. Had that first summer rain, where it's kind of warm and the trees are that deep, deep color green afterward. Weddings are happening. I love the summer. And especially this one, after this past year, it feels like one of new beginnings. I'm feeling very optimistic and uh, feels like things are changing for the better or at least evolving. So tonight, I think a very appropriate reading for us all to kick off our summer and snooze deeply in these warm nights is Siddhartha. This is uh, actually an episode we played on the first year of making the show. And I think it's high time that it comes to the top of the podcast feed for you to hear it again because it's absolutely wonderful. And I know it's one of the favorites of longtime sleepy listeners. So tonight, the story of Siddhartha. And now's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Part 1. The Son of the Brahmin In the shadow of the house, in the sunshine of the riverbank by the boats, in the shadow of the salt tree forest, in the shadow of the fig tree, Siddhartha grew up, the handsome son of the Brahmin, the young falcon, together with Govinda, his friend, the Brahmin's son. Sunshine tanned his fair shoulders at the riverbank when he bathed during the holy ablutions, during the holy sacrifices. Shadow flowed into his dark eyes in the mango grove during his boyish games while his mother sang during the holy sacrifices when he was taught by his father, the learned man, when he conversed with the sages. For some time now, Siddhartha had taken part in the conversation of the sages, had practiced oratorical contests with Govinda, had practiced with Govinda 
the art of contemplation, the duty of total concentration. He already understood how to utter the Om silently, that word of words, how to utter it silently into himself as he exhaled, how to utter it silently forth from himself as he exhaled. His psychic powers concentrated, his brow encircled with the glow of the clear-thinking mind. He already understood how to recognize Atman within his being, indestructible, at one with the universe. Joy leapt in his father's heart at that son, so quick to learn, so eager for knowledge. He saw a great sage and priest developing in him, a prince among the Brahmins. Bliss leapt in his mother's bosom whenever she saw him, when she saw him walking, sitting down and standing up. Siddhartha the strong, the handsome, walking on slender legs, greeting her with perfect propriety. Love stirred in the hearts of the young Brahmin daughters whenever Siddhartha passed through the lanes of town with his gleaming brow, with his kingly eyes, with his narrow hips. But more than all these, he was loved by Govinda, his friend, the Brahmin's son. He loved Siddhartha's eyes and pleasant voice. He loved his gait and the perfect propriety of his movements. He loved everything Siddhartha did and said, and above all, he loved his intelligence, his lofty and fiery thoughts, his burning will, his high vocation. Govinda knew this man will not become any ordinary Brahmin. No lazy functionary at sacrifices. No avaricious merchant of magic charms. No vain, empty speech maker. No malicious, crafty priest. But also, no kindly, stupid sheep in the flock of the multitude. No. And he too, Govinda, did not wish to become one of those. A Brahmin like ten thousand others. He wanted to follow Siddhartha, the loved one, the splendid one. And if Siddhartha should ever become a god, if he should ever enter the company of the radiant ones, then Govinda wished to follow him as his friend, as his companion, as his servant, as his spear-bearer, his shadow. Thus did everyone love Siddhartha. He gave joy to all. He was a pleasure to all. But he, Siddhartha, did not give himself joy. He was no pleasure to himself. Strolling on the pinkish walks of the fig orchard, sitting in the bluish shade of the grove of contemplation, washing his limbs in the daily expiratory bath, sacrificing in the deep shade of the mango forest with gestures of perfect propriety, Loved by all, the joy of all. Nevertheless, he bore no joy in his heart. Dreams came to him, and uneasy thoughts, flowing to him from the water of the river, sparkling from the night stars, molten in the rays of the sun. Dreams came to him, 
and the restlessness of the soul, smoking to him out of the sacrifices, uttered from the verses of the Rig Veda, trickling from the teachings of the old Brahmins. Siddhartha had begun to nurture dissatisfaction within himself. He had begun to feel that his father's love and his mother's love and also the love of his friend Govinda would not always and for all time make him happy, content him, sate him, suffice him. He had begun to foresee that his venerable father and his other teachers that the Brahmin sages had already imparted to him the greatest part and the best part of their wisdom, that they had already poured their abundance into his expectant vessel, and the vessel was not full. His mind was not satisfied. His soul was not at ease. His heart was not contented. The ablutions were good, but they were water. They did not wash away sin. They did not heal the mind's thirst. They did not dispel the heart's anguish. Excellent were the sacrifices and the invocation of the gods. But was that everything? Did the sacrifices offer happiness? And what was all that talk about gods? Was it really Prashapati who had created the world? Was it not Atman, he, the only one, the all one? Were not the gods beings that had been formed, created, just as you and I, subject to time, mortal? And so, was it good? Was it correct? Was it meaningful and supreme activity to sacrifice to the gods? To whom else should one sacrifice? To whom else was a reverence to be offered, but to him, the only one, the Atman. And where was the Atman to be found? Where did he dwell? Where did his eternal heart beat? Where else but in one's own self, deep within himself, in that indestructible something that each man bore inside him? But where, where was this self? this innermost, this ultimate thing. It was not flesh and bone. It was not thought or consciousness. Thus the sages taught. Where, where then was it? To reach that far, to attain the ego, the self, the Atman. Was there another path that was profitably to be sought? Ah, but no one pointed out that path. No one knew it. Not his father, not his teachers or the sages, not the holy sacrificial chants. They knew everything. The Brahmins and their sacred books. They knew everything. They troubled their minds over everything. And more than everything, the creation of the world, the origin of speech, of food, of inhalation, of exhalation, the categories of the senses, the exploits of the gods. They knew an infinite amount. But was it of any value to know all this when they did not know the one and only thing 
the most important thing, the only important thing. To be sure, many verses of the sacred books, especially in the Upanishads of the Samaveda, spoke of this innermost, ultimate thing, splendid verses. Your soul is the whole world, was written there, and it was written there that in sleep, in deep sleep, men entered their innermost being and dwelt in the Atman. Marvelous wisdom was contained in those verses. All the knowledge of the greatest sages was gathered together there in magical words, pure as honey gathered by bees. No, one should not hold lightly the immense store of knowledge that had been gathered and preserved there by countless generations of Brahmin sages. But where were those Brahmins? Where were those priests? Where were those sages or penitents who had succeeded not merely in knowing this most profound knowledge, but in living it? Where was the expert who could magically transfer his sojourn in the Atman from the sleeping to the walking state, to real life, to every step he took, to words and deeds? Siddhartha knew many venerable Brahmins, his father especially, a pure man, a learned man, a man most highly to be revered. His father was admirable, his demeanor was calm and noble, his life pure, his words wise, subtle, and noble thoughts resided in his brow. But even he, who knew so much, did he then live in bliss? Was he at peace? Was not he too merely a seeker, a man athirst? Was it not necessary for him, a long parched man, to drink again and again at sacred springs, at the sacrifice, at the books, at the dialogues of the Brahmins? Why was it necessary for him, the faultless one, to wash away his sins every day, to strive for purification every day, all over again, every day. Was Atman not in him then? Did the wellspring not flow then in his own heart? It had to be found. The wellsprings in one's own self, it had to be securely possessed. All else was a mere quest a detour, an aberration. Thus ran Siddhartha's thoughts. This was his thirst. This his sorrow. Often he recited to himself the words from the Chanda Yoga Upanishad. Verily, the name of the Brahman is Satyam. Truly, he who knows this enters daily into the heavenly world. It often seemed near the heavenly world, but he had never fully attained it. He had never quenched his ultimate thirst. And among all the wise and wisest men whom he knew and whose instructions he enjoyed, there was none of them who had fully attained it, that heavenly world who had fully quenched it, that eternal thirst. Govinda, Siddhartha said to his friend, 
my dear Govinda, come with me under the banyan tree. We shall practice concentration. They went to the banyan tree. They sat down, Siddhartha here, Govinda twenty paces further. As he was sitting down, ready to other the om, Siddhartha repeated in a murmur the verse. Om is the bow, the arrow is the soul, the Brahman is the arrow's goal, which should be hit unswervingly. When the customary period of concentration practice had passed, Govinda arose. Evening had come. It was time to perform the ablution of the evening hour. He called Siddhartha's name. Siddhartha made no reply. Siddhartha sat in concentration. His eyes were fixed on a very distant goal. The tip of his tongue protruded slightly between his teeth. He seemed not to be breathing. Thus he sat, shrouded in concentration, thinking of home. His soul having been shot like an arrow at the Brahmin. Once, Samanas had passed through Siddhartha's town. Itinerant ascetics, three dried-up, burnt-out men, neither old nor young, with dusty and bloody shoulders, nearly nude, scorched by the sun, surrounded by solitude, strangers and enemies to the world, outsiders and emaciated jackals in the realm of human beings. Behind them wafted a hot smell of silent passion, of destructive beauty, of pitiless liberation from the self. In the evening, after the hour of contemplation, Siddhartha said to Govinda, Tomorrow morning, my friend, Siddhartha will go to the Samanas. He will become a Samana. Govinda turned pale when he heard those words and read the resolve in his friend's motionless features, a resolve as impossible to deflect as an arrow loosed from a bow. Immediately, at first glance, Govinda realized, now is the beginning. Now Siddhartha is going his way. Now his destiny is beginning to germinate and mine along with his. And he became as pale as a dry plantain peel. Oh, Siddhartha, he called. Will your father allow you to? Siddhartha glanced over at him like a man awakening. With the speed of an arrow, he read in Govinda's soul. He read the anguish there. He read the devotion. Oh, Govinda, he said softly, let us not waste words. Tomorrow at daybreak, I shall begin the life of the Samanas. Speak no more of it. Siddhartha stepped into a room where his father was sitting on the palm fiber mat and stepped behind his father and remained standing there until his father felt someone standing behind him. The Brahmin said, is that you, Siddhartha? If so, say what you have come to say. 
Siddhartha said. With your permission, father, I've come to tell you that I desire to leave your house tomorrow and go to the ascetics to become a samana is my desire. I hope my father will not oppose this. The Brahmin was silent, and for so long in that small window the stars progressed and altered their configuration before the silence in the room came to an end. Mute and motionless stood the sun, with his arms crossed. Mute and motionless sat the father on his mat, and the stars moved across the sky. Then the father said, It is unseemly for a Brahmin to speak violent and angry words. But indignation stirs my heart. I should not like to hear that request from your lips a second time. Slowly, the Brahmin rose. Siddhartha stood mute with arms crossed. What are you waiting for? asked his father. Siddhartha said, you know what for. Indignantly, the father left the room. Indignantly, he sought his bed and laid down. An hour later, since no sleep visited his eyes, the Brahmin got up, paced to and fro, stepped out of the house. He looked in through the small window of the room, where he saw Siddhartha standing with arms crossed on the same spot. His light-colored outer garment glimmered palely. Uneasy at heart, his father returned to his bed. An hour later, since no sleep visited his eyes, the Brahmin got up again, paced to and fro, stepped in front of the house, saw that the moon had risen. He looked in through the window of the room where Siddhartha was standing in the same spot, with his arms crossed, the moonlight reflected on his bare shins. Anxious at heart, his father sought his bed. And he came again an hour later, and came again two hours later, looked in through the small window, saw Siddhartha standing in the moonlight, in the starshine, in the darkness, and he came again from hour to hour in silence, looked into the room, saw his son standing there, motionless, filled his heart with anger, filled his heart with unrest, filled it with sorrow. And in the last hour of the night, before the day began, he returned, stepped into the room, saw the young man standing there, looking tall and seemingly a stranger, Siddhartha, he said, what are you waiting for? You know what for. Will you keep on standing and waiting like this until it is day, noon, evening? I shall stand and wait. You will grow weary, Siddhartha. I shall grow weary. You will fall asleep, Siddhartha. I shall not fall asleep. You will die. Siddhartha, I shall die. And you would rather die than obey your father. 
Siddhartha has always obeyed his father. And so you will give up on your plan. Siddhartha will do what his father tells him to. The first light of day entered the room. The Brahmin saw that Siddhartha's knees were trembling slightly. In Siddhartha's face, he saw no trembling. His eyes were looking into the distance. Then his father realized that by now, Siddhartha was no longer with him and at home, that he had already left him. Siddhartha's father touched his shoulder. He said, You will go to the forest and become a Samana. If you find salvation in the forest, come and teach me salvation. If you find disappointment, then come back and let us once more sacrifice to the gods together. Now, go and kiss your mother. Tell her where you are going. But for me, it is time to go to the river and perform the first ablution. He lifted his hand from his son's shoulder and went out. Siddhartha swayed to one side when he tried to walk. He brought his limbs under control, bowed to his father, and went to his mother to do as his father had said. When, at the first daylight, he was slowly leaving the still silent town on his stiff legs, near the last cottage there arose a shadow that had been crouching there. It joined the wanderer. It was Govinda. You have come, said Siddhartha, and smiled. I have come, said Govinda. With the Samanas. On the evening of that day, they overtook the ascetics, the dried-out ascetics, and offered to accompany them and obey them. They were accepted. Siddhartha gave away his robe to a poor Brahmin on the road. All he still wore was a loincloth and an untailored, earth-colored wrap. He ate only once a day, and the food was never cooked. He fasted for 15 days. He fasted for 28 days. The flesh wasted away from his thighs and cheeks. Dreams flickered hotly from his widened eyes and his shriveling fingers. The nails grew long, as did the dry, stubbly beard on his chin. His gaze became icy when he met women. His mouth twitched in contempt when he passed through a town with well-dressed people. He saw merchants doing business, princes leaving for the hunt, mourners lamenting their dead, whores offering their services, doctors busy with patients, priests determining the proper day to begin sewing, lovers in love, mothers nursing their children, and none of it was worth the trouble of a glance. It was all a lie. It all stank. It stank of lies. It all gave the illusion of meaning and happiness and beauty. And it was all unacknowledged decay. The world had a bitter taste. Life was torment. 
One goal was Siddhartha's, and only one, to become empty, empty of thirst, empty of wishes, empty of dreams, empty of joy and sorrow, to die away from himself, no longer be I, to find repose with an emptied heart, to be ready for a miracle with thought liberated from ego. That was his goal. When all ego was overcome and dead, when every yearning and every impulse in the heart was silent, then the ultimate had to awaken that innermost part of his being, which is no longer the self, the great mystery. Silently, Siddhartha stood beneath the fierce vertical rays of the sun, burning with pain, burning with thirst, and he stood there until he no longer felt either pain or thirst. Silently, he stood in the rainy season, the water dripping from his hair onto his chilled shoulders, onto his chilled hips and legs, and the penitent stood there until shoulders and legs no longer felt cold, until they were silent, until they were still. Silently, he crouched in the brambles, blood oozing from his prickling skin and pus from his abscesses. And Siddhartha remained there rigidly, remained there motionlessly, until no more blood flowed, until there was no more pricking, until there was no more burning. Siddhartha sat upright and learned to conserve his breath, learned how to make do with just a little breath, learned how to cut off his breath. He learned how to slacken his heartbeat, beginning with the breath. He learned how to diminish the number of his heartbeats until there were only few and practically none. Instructed by the Samana elder, Siddhartha practiced denial of self. He practiced concentration in accordance with the new Samana rules. A heron flew over the bamboo forest, and Siddhartha absorbed the heron into his soul. He flew over the forest and mountain. He was the heron. He ate fish. He hungered with a heron's hunger. He spoke with a heron's croaking. He died a heron's death. A dead jackal lay on the sandy riverbank, and Siddhartha's soul slipped into the carcass. He was a dead jackal. He lay on the sand. He swelled up, stank, rotted, was torn apart by hyenas, was skinned by vultures, became a skeleton, turned to dust, blew away into the fields, and Siddhartha's soul returned. It had died. It had rotted. It had fallen into dust. It had tasted the dismal intoxication of the cycle of existences, filled with fresh thirst, like a hunter that was awaiting the gap through which it might escape the cycle. Where causation would come to an end, where sorrowless eternity began, he mortified his senses, he mortified his power to remember. He stole out of his ego and into a thousand unfamiliar forms of creation, 
He was an animal. He was a carcass. He was a stone. He was wood. He was water. And each time upon awakening, he found himself again. The sun or the moon shining. He was himself once again. He was moving through the cycle. He felt thirst. Overcame his thirst. Felt fresh thirst. Many things did Siddhartha learn from the Samanas. He learned how to take many paths away from self. He took the path of liberation from self through pain, through voluntary suffering and conquest of pain, of hunger, thirst, fatigue. He took the path of liberation from self through meditation by consciously emptying his mind of all ideas. He learned to take these and other paths. A thousand times he left his self behind. For hours and days at a time he remained in a state of non-self. But even though the paths led away from himself, at the end they always led back to self. Even though Siddhartha has escaped from self a thousand times, sojourning in the void, sojourning as an animal, as a stone, the return was unavoidable, inescapable the hour in which he found himself again, in sunlight or in moonlight, in shadow or in rain, and was once again I and Siddhartha, and once again felt the torment of the cycle that was imposed on him. Alongside him lived Govinda, his shadow, taking the same path, subjecting himself to the same efforts. Seldom did they say to each other any more than their duty and exercises required. At times they walked the villages together to beg for food for themselves and their teachers. What do you think, Govinda? Siddhartha said on one of these mendicant rounds. What do you think? Have we made any progress? Have we reached any goals? Govinda answered, We have learned. We are continuing to learn. You will be a great Samana, Siddhartha. You have learned every exercise quickly. The old Samanas have admired you often. Someday you will be a saint, O oh Siddhartha. Siddhartha said, it just does not seem so to me, my friend. What I have learned from the Samanas up to this day, O oh Govinda, I could have learned more quickly and more simply. I could have learned it in any tavern in a prostitute's district, my friend, among the teamsters and the dice players. Govinda said, Siddhartha is joking with me. How could he have learned concentration, retention of breath, insensibility to hunger and pain there among those miserable creatures. And Siddhartha said softly, as if speaking to himself, What is concentration? What is the ability to leave one's body? What is fasting? What is retention of breath? It is a flight from the self. It is a brief escape from the torment of being I. It is a brief numbing of the mind to counter pain and the senselessness of life. The same escape, the same brief numbing, is found by the ox drover in his inn 
when he drinks a few bowls of rice wine or fermented coconut milk. Then he no longer feels his self. Then he no longer feels the pains of life. Then he finds a brief numbing of the mind. When he has dozed off over his bowl of rice wine, he finds the same thing that Siddhartha and Govinda find when, in like the exercises, they are released from their bodies and dwell in oneself. It is thus, O Govinda. Govinda said, You speak thus, O friend, and yet you know that Siddhartha is not a drover and a Samana is not a drunkard. Yes, the drinker is numbed for a while. Yes, he finds a brief escape and rest, but he comes out of his delusion and finds that everything is still the same. He has not grown wiser. He has not gathered knowledge. He has not risen a few steps higher. And Siddhartha said with a smile, I do not know. I have never been a drinker. But that I, Siddhartha, find only a brief numbing in my exercises and bouts of concentration. And I am just as far removed from wisdom and salvation as a child in the womb. This I know, O Govinda. This I know. And on another occasion, when Siddhartha left the forest with Govinda to beg for some food in the village for their brothers and teacher, Siddhartha began to speak, saying, Well now, O Govinda, are we on the right path? Are we perhaps approaching knowledge? Are we perhaps approaching salvation? Or are we not rather going around in a circle, we, who after all thought we could escape the cycle of existences. Govinda said, We have learned much, Siddhartha. Much still remains to be learned. We are not going around in a circle. We are proceeding upward. The circle is a spiral, and we have already climbed many a step. Siddhartha answered, how old do you think our Samana elder is, our venerable teacher? Kavinda said, Our elder is about sixty years old. Siddhartha, He has become sixty years old and has never attained nirvana. He will become seventy and eighty, and you and I shall become just as old, and shall do exercises, and shall fast, and shall meditate. But we shall never attain nirvana, not he, not we. O Govinda, I believe that, of all the samanas who exist, perhaps not one, not one, will attain nirvana. We find consolations. We find ways to numb the mind. We learn technical skills for deceiving ourselves. But the essential, the path of paths, that we do not find. Govinda said, Please do not pronounce such terrifying words, Siddhartha. How could it be that among so many learned men, among so many Brahmins, among so many severe and venerable Samanas, among so many questing men, so many assiduous men, so many holy men, no one will find the path of paths. But Siddhartha said, 
in a voice containing as much sadness as mockery, in a soft, slightly sad, slightly mocking voice. Soon, Govinda, your friend will abandon this path of the Samanas, which he has followed with you for so long. I am suffering from thirst, O Govinda, and on this long Samana path, my thirst has not diminished one whit. I have always thirsted for knowledge. I have always been full of questions. I have questioned the Brahmins year after year. I have questioned the sacred Vedas year after year. Perhaps, O Govinda, it would have been just as good. It would have been just as clever and just as beneficial if I had questioned the hornbill or the chimpanzee. I have needed a long time and that time is not yet up to learn this. That no one can learn a thing. I believe firmly that in reality the thing we call learning does not exist. Oh, my friend, all there is is a knowledge which is everywhere, which is Atman, which is in me and in you and in every being. And so... I'm beginning to believe that this knowledge has no worse enemy than the desire to know, than learning. At that point, Govinda stopped short in their path, raised his hands and said, Siddhartha, please do not alarm your friend with such talk. Truly, your words awaken anxiety in my heart. And just think, where would the sacredness of prayers be? Where would the venerableness of the Brahmin class be, or the holiness of the Samanas, if things were as you say, if there were no such thing as learning? What, O Siddhartha, what would have then become of everything on earth that is holy, valuable, and venerable? And Govinda murmured a verse to himself, a verse from Upanishad. He who in contemplation with purified mind immerses himself in Atman, inexpressible in words, is his heart's bliss. But Siddhartha was silent. He was thinking about the words Govinda had spoken to him, and thought the words through to their very end. Yes, he thought, standing there with a lowered head, what would still be left of everything that seemed holy to us? What is left? What stands up to the test? And he shook his head.